Hello, humans, and welcome to Champagne Socialism. This is episode 32 of Your Power Report, and I am Dan from the internet. Um, hello, hope you're doing well out there in the universe. Just realized I missed my tea, but oh well, I'll, I'll get that later. Um, as usual, I, I'm juggling too much, which is why I, I missed an episode last week, but I'm making it up this time. I'm not doing a thing where I just skip an episode and just ghost people. There was an episode this week. It exists right here. And you're going to be getting an episode next week, too, so you, you'll be, we'll be making up with it. Anyways... Um, it's good that we do it in this pattern because sometimes there's stuff in the news where I feel like if I had to do an episode, I'd be really just digging around for what was really relevant. But now I feel like I have enough to talk about that's really relevant. Um, and so overall, um, as you probably have seen by the cover of this uh, episode, we're going to be talking about a little bit of COVID-19 denialism as it's become grievance politics. There's a really fascinating clip by um, Mike Preisner of The Empire Files as he uh, confronted George W. Bush, uh, whose reputation has been massaged recently in recent years, but uh, he really took him to task on um, the 20th anniversary on 9-11 and his actual ramifications of what he did there. And lastly, a little bit about um, AOC's tax the rich dress and what that means for the world. No, just kidding. It's not that important. Or is it? I don't know. We'll find out. You have a poll podcast listening to find out about that stuff. Anyways, if your political awakening was late into the Trump administration, like really, really late, and you honestly believed that Joe Biden would lead to some significantly, the election of Joe Biden rather, would lead to some significantly improved immigration policy, then you really should have been listening to everyone on the left who said this wouldn't happen. But nevertheless, welcome to the reality we were warning you about all along. This week, terrible images came out of Del Rio, Texas, when we saw um, Border Patrol agents on horseback whipping Haitian migrants who were coming across the border. Um, and these images that were captured here by Paul Racha of the um, Associated Free Press Agency. Um, Border Patrol agents were obviously authorized to act in this kind of way as Haitian migrants have been making their way um, through Mexico on top of the dual crises of the earthquake that happened recently in Haiti, as well as the um, recently toppled uh, government there. Um, and so, of course, the people there having no real leadership, no real like functioning society to speak of are desperate and they're fleeing anywhere else they can find one. And thus you get this humanitarian crisis at our southern border, which happens all the time. And of course, these photos are recent. They're from 2021. A Democrat is in office. And so there's a lot you can take away from this moment. And yes, the images are very brutal. I'm not going to like sugarcoat that at all, um, even through my like usual snark and things. But there's a lot we can take away from this moment, uh, at least three different perspectives that I want to dive into. Um... Broadly speaking, that's how the administration reacted. Again, the Democratic administration. Um, how the Republicans reacted. And it used to be, you used to have um, this sort of compassionate conservatism. George W. Bush was the quote-unquote compassionate conservatism. Um, Ronald Reagan talked about having a border policy that allowed migrants. He almost talked about open borders, something that even Democrats won't touch nowadays. Um, but... It's very clear the Republican Party has now fully embraced the sort of Trumpist wing that wasn't just about, you know, the things Trump liked. But Trump, when he came down the escalator that fateful 2015 day, um, the big thing that came out of that speech was that he called Mexicans rapists and criminals. He immediately tied xenophobia and racism to his platform and to his strategy in a way that 
Republican presidents had kind of winked and nodded towards, or Republican presidential candidates had sort of winked and nodded towards, but had never fully embraced since, honestly, since the Democrats were fully embracing that in um, Pat Robertson's Southern strategy. But you have nationalists who have fully taken over the Republican Party. And that's the second lens we're going to be looking at, in addition to the first lens, which is the administration. And there's the third lens, which is the broader historical context, which is where this becomes really important here. And so I want to start with the thing I kind of went to the diatribe with earlier, because apparently I want to talk about it, so it's here. And that's the second lens I was talking about, which is how the Republican Party, which has become the American Nationalist Party, has weaponized this moment. They're already talking about beforehand saying that, oh, we have a crisis of our border. There's a surge of Mexican migrants and um, migrants from Central and South America, because there's always some surge. There's always something to be afraid of, isn't there? Never something happy happening, except something going on in some college campus on Fox News, anyways. But you, that was the context of what was happening before this. Uh, Tucker Carlson was calling for more people to be at the southern border, wanted more trucks and things like that, saying, why are there um, efforts happening in other parts of the country when we need efforts at the southern border because there's a surge of migrants coming? Um, <clears throat> but nevertheless, you have people at the southern border, and of course, they're there patrolling the border because uh, at no point did uh, Joe Biden or the Democratic administration ever hint that they would have anything near open borders, even though that's what the Republicans were accusing them of roundly throughout the entire uh, 2020 election. Now you have this instance where, yes, we go to the beginning where we have these gruesome photos out there. And is this a moment where Tucker Carlson or the people on Fox News go, hey, this is the kind of tough on, uh, you know, immigration stance we want. There's a legal way to get in line and become a legal citizen. And you should let people do that. There shouldn't be people cutting in line, right? You would think that when you have <laughs> I mean, I hate to be glib about this, but this is what they're clamoring for, right? They're clamoring for these people on horseback to whip them out of the country, to discourage them from entering the United States. That was the Trump policy, to discourage people, to deter people from entering the United States. So you would think Tucker Carlson would be happy, right? Well, let's see how he chose to contextualize this, you know, Haitian crisis at the border here. An unrelenting stream of immigration. But why? Well, Joe Biden just said it to change the racial mix of the country. That's the reason, to reduce the political power of people whose ancestors lived here and dramatically increase the proportion of Americans newly arrived from the third world. And then Biden went further. He said that non-white DNA is the, quote, source of our strength. Imagine saying that. This is the language of eugenics. It's horrifying. But there's a reason Biden said it. In political terms, this policy is called the Great Replacement, the replacement of legacy Americans with more obedient people from faraway countries. They brag about it all the time. But if you dare to say it's happening, they will scream at you with maximum hysteria. And here you have Joe Biden confirming his motive on tape with a smile on his face. So he then goes on to play a clip of Joe Biden. And he's like, of course, the way Tucker Carlson frames it it's as though, hey, it's Joe Biden saying it, not me. It's Joe Biden talking about white DNA. But first of all, I, I'm not going to get into the position of depending anything Corn Pop is saying because it's like it's that's very far gone when he's off prompter, like whatever here. But the issue is what I was, able, what I was articulating earlier as I was describing this at one point was that these ideas of like great replacement theory and these kind of fringe theories, which unfortunately now I have to talk about this because this is the way it happens. 
Um, great replacement theory is something that's talked about on the extreme far right wing. The idea that the Democrats, because they're soft on borders and are fine letting immigrants into the country, again, never mind your lying eyes and the fact that um, Obama deported more people than Bush did, that um, <laughs> all of the stuff that's going on right now at the border is happening under Joe Biden and Donald Trump just like attempted to get a border wall up and didn't really even do that right. I think the border wall fell from some like moderate wins. Um, so anything that's claiming the Democrats are soft on border policy is just ridiculous, right? But the aspect that the Great Replacement Theory is getting at is saying, okay, Democrats are soft on borders. They're trying to let uh, people in from all these other countries here. So then what's going to happen? <laughs> and forgive me here because it gets very racist. The idea is essentially that, um, I-, I guess to be less graphic about it, um, people will come in this country and then demographically speaking, you will have people who are... F- you have fewer people who are purely European, even though that kind of idea is weird because people forget there was a, t- a point where Irish people were not considered like purely white. You could only be like English or like Welsh or like Danish, right? The Irish were considered dirty and then the Italians were considered dirty and then Eastern Europeans were considered dirty and not even like white, right? So like that has changed based on, you know, whatever America's enemy is at the time, right? But Great replacement theory, I keep getting distracted from it because it's so ridiculous, is the idea that overall the American like politicians and the elites are trying to make it so America is less white of a country and more like, you know, like brown, essentially. It's a racist idea on its base. But the horrible thing about this is that because it's no longer, it's usually just on, you know, Daily Stormer and the most like racist extreme aspects of the internet and like... It's more or less the gutters of what's going on in discourse. Like, more or less people aren't aware of this in mainstream discourse. But Tucker Carlson has the number one most watched, like, uh, cable news show in the country. Consistently. Far more than um, whatever is on on MSNBC or CNN usually combined. That's just the way Fox News rolls. Um, They claim that mainstream media is out to get them without acknowledging that they are, in fact, mainstream media. And so from this platform, Tucker Carlson is now mainstreaming the idea of great replacement theory. So people who don't know about it are now going to Google it and fall down these rabbit holes that have been placed for them by far right-wing extremists who believe that the only way to stop the great replacement is through violent force. And what does that look like? I mean, that looks like a race war, honestly. And so that's dark, but that's just to dig into what we're dealing with. That's just the mainstream Republican Party now. That's their mainstream figure on their mainstream network saying that. So what is the Democratic Party response? What are the centrists doing about this? Um, well, that is also not good either. You, you mostly get uh, Jen Psaki saying that our message continues to be now is not the time to come. She's not the press secretary for Joe Biden is essentially iterating that, hey, listen, we understand that what's going on isn't that great, but we're not really going to do anything about it because this is still our policy. We don't want people to actually come and be here. But, you know, she does acknowledge that the optics of it don't look that great. So here's what she has to say on that. So what he has asked all of us to convey clearly to people who are understandably have questions, 
are passionate, are concerned as we are about the images that we have seen is one, we feel those images are horrible and horrific. There is an investigation the president certainly supports overseen by this, the Department of Homeland Security, which he has conveyed will, uh, will happen quickly. I can also convey to you that the secretary also conveyed to civil rights leaders earlier this morning that we would no longer be using horses in Del Rio. Uh, so that is something, a policy change that has been made in response. But separately, all related, it's also important for people to understand what our process and our immigration process is and what the steps are that are taken. And so Jen Psaki, who's representing the administration, the administration has a very good opportunity right now to set the tone here and make an example and say, hey, look, this is not a good look for our immigration policy. We don't actually have a plan for taking in these Haitian immigrants who are coming. We don't actually have a plan for taking in the Afghan immigrants who are coming. We didn't plan all of this out super well. That's very clear from what's going on. The Joe Biden administration could have an opportunity to say, hey, we messed up on that. Here's how we're going to own up on that and make that potentially better. At least it could do that. Rather, They've chosen to say, okay, listen, the horses are bad optics. We're going to ban those. But at the end of the day, strong borders keep the brown people out. It's not. I mean, here's the thing. As a leftist, I didn't expect any better. All right. But we can't let the soft bigotry of low expectations, <clears throat> to borrow some more George W. Bush speaks, so I guess it's a throwback episode. We can't let the fact that we have low expectations prevent us from expecting the bare minimum out of our politicians. Just because our politicians continually let us down doesn't mean we can't demand standards. One of those standards has to be reconciling with the global context and the historical context with why you have Haitians trying to get into the United States to begin with, like let alone the global and, and historical context of people on horses, uh, people with fairer skin on horses whipping people of darker skin um, on the ground, never mind the historical context and the historical parallels of that, because a lot of people were very quick to point that out in the media. And of course, there's a definite um, systemic racist element to Put it play there. But I have a class element that I even want to, not, not even a class element, but like a historical element between Haiti and the United States that needs to be put to bear here because there's the abuse of the Haitian peoples throughout history from the US occupation from 1915 to 1934, where the US basically went into Haiti to steal natural resources and hold them hostage to all the way up to the present day in 2021 with the assassination of the Haitian president by the Colombian military. Some of those people in the Colombian military seem to have been trained by members of the U.S. military. And I'm sorry, not the Colombian military. It was like Colombian paramilitary forces, right? Um, but the, some of them were allegedly trained by the U.S. military. Um, and that's not to say that the Haitian uh, leader at the time was 
you know, widely favored. A lot of the people had differences or complaints with that leader. But you still have the reaches of, you know, American interventionalism in Haiti's recent history, in the 20th century, not even 100 years ago. And so just as in American society, how, uh, just to speak personally, like Black Americans, my grandparents' grandparents were slaves, right? And I, 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 I remember my grandparents being alive. And for a very small amount of time, I remember my great-grandparents being alive. So my great-grandparents' parents who were, were slaves. And I remember my great-grandparents. So it's just like, what I'm trying to say is we are very close. Like, just speaking from the Black experience, we understand genetically, like, just looking at our family lineage, that slavery was not that far along ago. And then we understand that when we look at generational wealth and we see how on average, how far behind the average black family is in building generational wealth compared to the average white family because for so long, building wealth for black people was illegal or even if you were had a chance to do it legally, you always face the threat of having folks go after that wealth out of racism or for whatever reason. You would have that as a detriment to the act of building wealth generationally. And so just in the same way that people understand that, there's a way to understand how American interventionalism, even though the past 100 years, 200 years, can set a country back generations, can set a country back from what otherwise could have been a better trajectory for generations. Um to say nothing of many of the U.S.'s escapades through the early to mid to late 20th century, merely mid to late 20th century in the Cold War, throughout, like, Central Latin America. But all those have ripple effects leading to and contributing to, of course, that's not the only thing, but it's definitely contributing to the poverty that is seen in Haiti and the desolate conditions that are leading folks to brave everything and brave people with <laughs> on horses to try to get a better chance in the United States. If you want to know how systemic atrocities like slavery or internment, things like that continue despite public disapproval for so long, it's because the elites that we look up to saw the identification of oppression as impolite. While radicals who actually understood and could identify the issues in front of them were slowly pushed out of the conversation. Because to call this what it is, to point out the comparisons between uh, Border Patrol right now and slave patrols, or to even go to the history of like maybe, oh, wow, the United States did some things in its foreign policy even within the past 90 years that are horrible and regrettable, that directly relate to the situation in Haiti, that have generational ramifications. And so as a direct result of this, 
yeah, I'm not saying the United States does everything, and I don't have the solution for what the United States does as far as repairing the damage that it did and the ripple effects that happened to Haiti. But damn if it's got to be something. Because we're definitely some contributing nature to being at fault. It, that's the key thing, though. It's the active denial by an elite political class. This elite political class that we're taught in different times throughout history we're supposed to pay attention to, whether it's those who are opinion columnists at the written newspapers or those who are on TV or um, those who speak for the nobility, whoever we're supposed to be looking forward to as political leaders um, to get a sense of what's going on in the world. Those are the ones who during the Trump administration, would say that, oh, kids in cages, that's uh, too alarmist to use. Or, oh, it's not kids in cages during the Biden administration. It's uh, indefinite detention facilities for children, for minors, or whatever they were trying to call it. When one side is damn near for extermination and the other side is for you know not extermination but make them go away and we don't really care where they go or why they got here then then when you are the only humanitarian response out there when you are folks like those on the left who are saying no no this is all bad we need to rethink how we do this in a more humane just way that is yes sustainable to our society but also let's get real we're the richest country in the world. We just misallocate our money. We misallocate our money because we let private enterprise run roughshod over our economy. We claim that they do it in the most efficient way possible. But our healthcare system is the most expensive one in the world, and it gets us some of the worst outcomes when it comes to infant mortality, when it comes to uh, likelihood of death from certain things that other countries with cheaper healthcare systems that also happen to be universal don't have problems with. It's this misallocation of attention that happens to favor capital and existing entrenched forms of power that ultimately makes it so we keep getting in these historical cycles. Because let's be clear about something. History doesn't repeat. By continuing to wait for history to repeat itself, we're looking for these perfect moments where we're looking for a figure that reminds you of a different figure or an event that is happening in just the way as the other event happens. If you're looking for that exact right puzzle piece to fit in exactly where you want it to, then you're going to miss the things that are similar to it, but are taking effect in a new way, in a modern way. Because evil learns from the mistakes of the past, oftentimes faster than good does. History doesn't repeat. Time is complex, to say the least. And a lot is happening at any given time that makes an impact on history, but isn't always recorded by historians. If we as people expect history to repeat itself, then we as people are fulfilling 
a prophecy, a self-fulfilling prophecy, if you will. History does not repeat. It echoes. So recognize those signs of when it echoes. And we have to recognize those signs when it echoes so we aren't just passive bystanders when that happens. Because forgetting the history of what happened and what was done upon other peoples that were less powerful and then shunning them aside once they seek the powerful for refuge. That's a story that is based throughout history in different empires that have come and gone. And and it's a story that doesn't really end well for those empires because it foments discontent. It foments enemies, not just within the world, but among your own people. Among the people who the empire ultimately relies on for benefits and goods, right? So, again, history doesn't repeat. It echoes. And recognize it so it doesn't run over you. So as we wind down September, uh, we always used to do Power Report kind of like around the end of the month. It was sort of a monthly show when it first began its original run. And it was like, okay, what will this month be remembered for if it is remembered at all in history? And September 2021, at least in American political history, may perhaps be remembered when Biden tried to put his foot down when it came to COVID-19 and vaccine mandates. I mean, it was just the slightest of foot put-downs, if you will. Nevertheless, it was enough to fuel the Republican outrage machine, grievance machine, if you will, for days, weeks, months on end. Maybe not months on end, because, again, we just got into this first month, but weeks on end, to say the least. Um... Now, a lot of these things you can't really enforce, and um, states and local municipalities have a better idea of enforcing, but the thing that, um, well, a lot of the main things are requiring employers to provide paid time off for people to get vaccinated, calling on large entertainment venues to require proof of vaccination or testing before entry, requiring COVID-19 vaccinations for over 17 million healthcare workers at Medicare or Medicaid-participating hospitals and other healthcare settings. That part's especially important because you have a lot of healthcare workers who are Uh, hesitant about getting the vaccine, which is interesting to say the least. Uh, You have a requirement for vaccinations for all federal workers and for millions of contractors that do business with the federal government. A a federal vaccine mandate was already kind of in the works. Um, That's something that Biden can most directly control because he's in charge of the uh, executive branch, which oversees the federal government in that regards. But this is the one that sent conservatives into a tizzy because it goes directly to small businesses or let's see how small requiring all employers with over 100 employees to ensure their workers are vaccinated or tested weekly so again even in this one you don't have to be vaccinated you can be tested weekly and as long as you don't have the vaccine you can continue um going into your job also 
consider how difficult this would actually be to enforce, like to have people go into the office unless people were in the office and um, complaining about these things as they were happening um, or complaining about their offices and their workplaces that didn't have proper COVID protocols in place, then absolutely. But you even you you have to understand that it's difficult for the government to do a lot of basic things as people understand by you know that the standard oh i went to the dmv and it sucked that's the standard i hate government story right but the government doesn't really have the infrastructure to enforce all of these things so these are just strong recommendations i guess they could enforce it to the letter of the law but it's ultimately some precedent that states and local governments and honestly employers can use to justify their policies going forward and ultimately get to the thing that conservatives wanted all along. Because I remember when COVID-19 started in March 2020, when the narrative essentially was, and this was really true, arguably a political point, but definitely true, that Republicans didn't care about the virus. They wanted people to go to work anyways, keep spending money, keep contributing to the economy, and if people die, they die. It'll only be old people, and it'll be gone before you know it. Uh, officials from Texas, this is pretty much the official party line. Just keep going. Um, work for the economy. That was the idea. Now we're at the point where we have a vaccine. We've seen the results of that, by the way. Uh, almost 700,000 people uh, have died of COVID-19 in the United States alone. We're almost 4.5 million people worldwide who have died of COVID-19. So many of those deaths are unnecessary and that number is going to continue to go up and that number is still a gross undercount in the United States and worldwide. But now we're at a point where we have vaccines and there's a whole issue with how we're getting those vaccines out and how America is a country that's so privileged that we have so many vaccines, we can turn them away. Meanwhile, countries are begging to have vaccines so that they can actually control the virus in their localities. And it's nothing but American greed uh, preventing that vaccine from getting out. But like, there's a whole many layers around the vaccine thing to itself. But in America, we get to do these little performative stunts around vaccination efforts and controlling COVID-19, which is just an incredibly privileged position. So the right wing immediately used the vaccine mandates as a fundraising opportunity uh, the GOP officially, like the official party, sent out fundraising emails about this. Uh, ben Shapiro's Daily Wire did media hits on Fox News and uh, their CEO, whose last name is literally boring, uh, said that they would use every measure imaginable, including legal means, including, like, yeah, joining onto the thousands of people who are challenging the Biden administration on legal grounds saying this isn't constitutional. But it's not like they're doing that just out of their own pockets. I mean, sure they are, but right after that, they're asking people to donate because un under the justification that they will need this to do this legal challenge. And whether they use that money for the legal challenge that would just be a waste of time or they don't, I mean, who's really to say? They would have to, like, release their financials, which they're almost certainly not going to do. 
So what they do with that money ultimately, uh, you know, we ultimately did fight the legal fees, but ultimately we did also have subscriptions and we did move a lot of our staff out to a new office. We have to pay for a new office space. So listen, come on. There's a lot of stuff to work out here. Listen. I can't wait to do that video about grifting in politics and more broadly speaking. There's so much to go into there. Um, and, and to be clear, like, people have to take whatever they're good at and monetize those skills for survival. That's kind of just like what you're taught to do because we have to pay for bills and to have housing and all these other different things. And so that's what we're forced to do. And so obviously people have to do that to some extent. So like, I'm not saying like every person who has a show and asks for money is a grifter per se, right? But let's use, let's, let's get to the point here. This is a global pandemic. 4.5 million people around the world are dead. 700,000, almost 700,000 people in the United States were about, at the time of recording, 660,000 dead. Again, gross under-recount. Under but we, we're past this point where we're past hypotheticals. We know that the other side is using COVID-19 as a political tool. There used to be this scenario that, oh, if there was an alien invasion, Democrats and Republicans and people of all, you know, creeds and colors and whatever would unite and sing Kumbaya because we'd have a common enemy. Well, now it's abundantly clear that that would never happen. And it's gotten to the point where these people will kind of just lie to your face. And they don't mind doing so. About the fact they lie to your face when it comes to a lot of these different things. When you have to cover some idiotic thing that Stelter said or Cuomo, just these, these clown people, when you have to cover it, right, or Don Lemon, as you call him, like, what, how do you think they live with themselves at this point when they just lie again and again and we have the internet to expose the lies? If this isn't 20 years ago when you were on CNN yeah. and, we, and we couldn't expose things, we can expose it now and they still do it. Well, it's, I guess I would ask myself, like, I mean, I lie. If I'm really cornered or something, I lie. I really try not to. I try never to lie on TV. I, try, I just don't, you know, I don't like lying. I certainly do it, you know, out of weakness or whatever. But to systematically lie like that mm -hmm. without asking yourself, like, why am I doing this? So if, if these people ask themselves, why am I doing this? You say, well, because I want to protect the system because I really believe in the system. Okay, who's running the system? You're... You're lying to defend Jeff Bezos? Like you're treating you're treating Bill Gates like some sort of moral leader? Like are you kidding? Like how dare you do that? How dare you use your power to protect and guard the powerful even as you clamp to, you know, put your boot on the neck of the weakest piece some some Catholic school kid from Kentucky? It's like a parody. Are you kidding? At the end of that, I think he's referencing um, the case of the supposed cancellation 
from that um, one kid who like stared in the face of the protester um, during whatever thing. And he was used as like an avatar, the right wing of like, what did this kid do? Why is the left wing media attacking him for whatever? Why is he like the avatar of white privilege? Blah, 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 blah. Uh, you'll notice how the right, right wing, Freudian slip, you'll notice how the right wing often takes these useful characters useful to their agenda or their worldview and then uses them as like poster children for what they talk about on their shows all the time. And it's not really substantive per se. Like you can use a lot of things on the left as case studies for different uh, political moments or things as I do on power report all the time. Cause I think it's useful as a tool to uh, teach people things, but you have to have substance with that example. If I'm talking about the Bernie Sanders campaign and any one of the steps at which the Democratic Party interrupted that campaign to, you know, like, anytime they sabotage that campaign, either in 2016 or 2020, those are substantive examples that I can go into, but I want right now for like the sake of like not digging into an example in my own train of thought. Oh, the joy of hosting episodes solo. Um, but in the context of having Tucker Carlson talking in this instance here, you don't have a good connection here. He is using one of these, you know, nonsense culture war examples of some kid who's not even useful to their agenda anymore who may or may not have been, like, legitimately canceled, you know, this, these are all nonsense things, right? And, and I'm really just missing the main part about that. He said he doesn't mind lying. <laughs> okay? Like, he says... I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to take an executive decision there. I got to play that uh, main part there again, where he's like, yeah, sometimes I lie on air, and he kind of, like, walks around it Things. We can expose it now and they still do it. Well, it's, I guess I would ask myself, like, I mean, I lie. If I'm really cornered or something, I lie. I really try not to. I try never to lie on TV. I try, I just don't, you know, I don't like lying. I certainly do it, you know, out of weakness or whatever. But to systematically lie like that mm -hmm. without asking yourself, like, why am I doing this? So if, if these people ask themselves, why am I doing this? You say, well, because I want to protect the system because I really believe in the system. Okay, who's running the system? You're you're lying to defend Jeff Bezos? Like you're treating you're treating Bill Gates like some sort of moral leader? Like, are you kidding? Like, how dare you do that? How dare you use your power to protect and guard the powerful, even as you clamped you know put your boot on the neck of the weakest piece some some catholic school kid yeah so that's when he gets to the catholic school kid from kentucky thing and like whatever right but he, he he's first you have to almost go back in that whole analysis because yes he says that okay sometimes we lie but you're lying to and projection 101 by the way but you're lying to protect the powerful he's basically talking to himself tucker carlson i'm lying to protect the powerful Yes, of course he is. He does it every single night. He does it for a handsome paycheck, and he apparently doesn't mind doing that. 
Tucker, McNear, Carlson, Swanson. Um, because he is an elite himself, even though he claims to be not among them. But also, like, Bill Gates, I think with the vaccine conversation, uh, he's a little bit relevant. But overall, like, he is the retired CEO of Microsoft. He doesn't have, like, that much um, influence, unless we're talking about the uh, development uh, economy or, you know, like, pyramid scheme of development economics, if you will. Um, where charities basically funnel money from billionaires into these like pseudo projects that are supposedly helping people out there um, in these different countries and desolate situations, but in reality are just, you know, parking money for rich people and giving them um, tax benefits, meanwhile, barely providing much material benefit to people. Again, Bill Gates is only relevant in that context. Jeff Bezos, okay, that's a little bit more something. Um, Amazon has a wild amount of influence in uh, American culture in the world, whether it's um, Jeff Bezos making uh, mayors across the country do dances just to get um, an Amazon factory in their, you know, um, hometown, I guess, like, yeah, in their city. The way that... We have a billionaire space race that is being um, participated in by Jeff Bezos. And the way Jeff Bezos and Amazon, um, through his companies, don't really pay that much in taxes, yet abuse the hell out of their workers, um, making it difficult to get, for them to go on bathroom breaks, heavily surveilling not just the workers, but honestly their customers. That's a good point. But Tucker Carlson only pretends to care about Amazon and things like that when he can seem like a populist. But when it comes to things that hit like a lot close to home, a lot other different corporate interests, or the fact that the Republicans are the closest to maintaining that corporate power even more so than the Democrats, Tucker Carlson's really silent on that because Tucker Carlson takes their money. These people are bums. But everything has cause and effect to bring this back to the whole vaccine mandate thing. Because this was about to, to show why the Republicans are acting in bad faith here. We need to remember why Biden has these vaccine mandates in the first place because Biden didn't just decide to become a tyrant and issue light vaccine mandates here or there, right? It happened because the virus mutated out of control because of lax policies in America and elsewhere to control the spread of the virus in the first place. And then there was a slow vaccine rollout, like I kind of mentioned, kind of America's fault also, kind of Bill Gates for um, insisting, among others, that um, there be intellectual property rights be protected for vaccines when there are other ways to make sure that, okay, producing vaccines can still be profitable for the people who do it, but we can still make sure that people can get the vaccine because there is a biomedical incentive and an economic incentive to not having a virus spread uncontrolled throughout society and the globe. But again, now the same economy that Republicans were ready to have us die over last year is threatened if the virus continues to propagate in society, as I've been saying all along. And Republicans are fighting economic recovery every step of the way. 
from making it harder to getting access to vaccines to citing and empowering people who believe that the vaccines are a hoax to literally fighting to decrease an economic stimulus package just on the grounds that it would make a Democratic president look good. So, okay, COVID is... The, you, you have to really unwrap the... And you can use COVID-19 to unwrap the sabotaging nature of the Republican Party. Like, they want the economy to be better, so we all just deal with COVID-19. Now we have a better way to deal with COVID-19, and they don't want that better way. They still want the economy to be better, but they want less money and less um, government spending to do that, even though you need that to get the economy going, because the way you get private spending and signal to private spending that's good to go, in addition to interest rates and things like that, which to a large extent are out of um, Congress's control, you need fiscal spending, which is in Congress's control. If it wasn't already clear enough to people, because again, a lot of people are just new to politics. I don't mean to shame you for being new to politics. I'm glad you're new to politics, but you have to have some respect for people who've been paying attention for a while. We're having the debt ceiling fight all over again. Now, I'm not going to explain the debt ceiling because you're going to be hearing too much about it again, but there's just some important notes to be made on the debt ceiling that um, are made by Sahil Kapoor here. I'll put the tweets up. That um, a debt limit, debt ceiling, debt limit, essentially the same thing. Um, a debt limit extension would be necessary for the United States to keep paying its own bills, even if Congress dropped $3.5 trillion bill in its entirety. So the debt ceiling would need to pass, even if the big reconciliation bill that... Uh, Kirsten Cinema and the Democrats, or sorry, Kirsten Cinema, the centrist Democrats, and Joe Manchin, all of which are centrist Democrats, are dragging their feet on. Even if they drop that $3.5 trillion bill in its entirety, the debt limit, raising the debt limit, would be necessary. Because, as Sahal Kapoor notes, raising the debt limit does not authorize new spending. It enables the United States to pay bills that both parties have racked up over many years and continue to rack up with demands for higher domestic and military spending. The debt ceiling, raising the debt ceiling and raising the debt limit, does not mean that America is allowed to take on more debt. All it means is that America will pay the debts it has already taken on. Therefore, If we don't raise the debt ceiling, America is signaling that it won't pay those debts, which could cause further spiraling in the global economy. So again, the Republicans are on the side of blocking the raising of the debt ceiling on a bad faith argument from the Obama administration. And yet there are still Democrats who are arguing that Republicans are acting in good faith. This is the lesson that COVID-19 can teach us politically, because apparently we're not learning any lessons from COVID-19. Maybe this can be the one lesson that people learn from COVID-19. 
When it comes to forcing power in Congress, the myth that Republicans are good faith negotiating partners must be disposed of. Maybe COVID-19 can be the final straw. Maybe moderate Democrats don't want to learn this lesson because it's easy for them to have fall guys and gals like Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin and uh, much of the Republican Party. Then for those moderate Democrats to come out and say, yeah, actually, we don't want change. We are moderates. We are weak. We are feckless. We are lame. We don't actually want what the majority of Americans want because we don't represent the majority of Americans. We represent the corporate class. We represent a class of people that is so far removed from everyone else that we don't have to really... They're so far removed from the working class, rather, that we don't have to even consider them or give them a second thought. The excuse that moderate Democrats use that Republicans can be worked with also has to be disposed with and be identified as a cop-out for the things that those moderate Democrats are just too damn cowardly to do. One of the country's most fearless journalists confronted George W. Bush, former President George W. Bush, on his responsibility for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Many are reporting that these wars are winding down, and while I'm of the opinion that Biden deserves credit for doing something that numerous American presidents have failed to do, um, I will just quickly point to the mounting evidence that it is likely that the continuing forever wars in the Middle East are not winding down. They're just taking on a new form that is more autonomous, more targeted, but will still continue uh, U.S. military and corporate presence in the region for years to come. And before we get to this phenomenal video, I just want to provide some really quick context because I guess that's what I do. I'm Dan the Context Man here. Um... I personally didn't speak much on the 20th anniversary on 9-11 because I was very young at the time of the event and very far from any formation of a semblance of a political identity. I think the ability to know when your voice is productive in a conversation and when it isn't is a skill that people who talk about politics for a living should practice more of. And it's a good skill to have in life. It's a good skill to have in organizing spaces. It's a good skill to have in relationships. Um, just knowing when to let others speak and when to listen. And when actually, no, it is time for you to speak up because your voice can be relevant in a, in a particular situation. And, you know... <sighs> This instinct is not stopping a whole slew of content creators even younger than me from taking a shot at um, having defendive takes on 9-11. That being said, here's my defendive take on 9-11. Um, I think that given the 20 years since that, um, many of those years I do feel more comfortable speaking about, the right opinion to have 
about 9-11 and everything that's happened since must acknowledge the innocent lives lost or forever changed of people from America, Iraq, Afghanistan, and countless other countries. As a result of that day, but also the ensuing uh, military invasions that happened afterwards. And that right opinion should also acknowledge that 9-11 was neither the beginning nor the end of the consequences that happened as the result of the U.S. war machine. I think some of the best people to relay those nuances are those who were fed the early 2000s pro-America propaganda but came out on the other side of that with a clearer first-person perspective on the realities of the military-industrial complex. The toxic relationship between our military and the private companies that have a direct interest in making sure that the United States stays geopolitically involved in these conflicts. Private companies that are financially incentivized to make sure that wars are happening and that working class folks are sent to die in those wars just to justify the existence of the products that these companies create or the services that they offer, often at ludicrous prices with poor results as seen with how some military contractors were marking up the prices of Coca-Cola like 400%, or how their F-35 military jets or things like that that haven't been able to fly in any like war efforts because they just don't work. There's so much waste in the military, but it's justified because of the relationship between the military and our government, that presidents since Eisenhower and a little bit before him and many after him have noted in just being the president, even though a lot of those presidents have used that to their advantage, such as George W. Bush. So it's great to see that Mike Preisner Um, of The Empire Files. The Empire Files is a long history of that um, show and uh, different places it has appeared, but basically it's really hard-hitting documentary journalism. They really do a good job of sticking to the facts, um, trying to offer the clearest and most honest perspective possible in defense of human rights. I'm really big fans, if you can't tell. But anyways... Here's that clip of Mike Preisner of The Empire Files confronting George W. Bush at an event in L.A., as well as a little bit of what happened afterwards. Mr. Bush, when are you going to apologize for the million Iraqis that are dead because you lied? You lied about weapons of mass destruction. You lied about connections to 9-11. You lied about Iraq being attacked. You sent me to Iraq. You sent me to Iraq in 2003. My friends are dead. Joshua Castillo. You you killed people. You lied. You lied about WMD. A million Iraqis are dead because you lied. My friends are dead because you lied. You need to apologize. Apologize. You need to apologize. Apologize. Are you with this gentleman? No. Help me, sir. 
What just happened? Uh, I'm wondering if they're going to arrest me, but I just disrupted George Bush speaking. Um, they dragged me out. Uh, uh, I guess the cops are not after me, so I, I guess they're not arresting running, me. But yeah. yeah. Um, well, uh, well, what I did was I tried to read the names of friends of mine who uh, died after going to Iraq and then uh, died of um, injuries they came home with, um, the names of Iraqis who were killed by the U.S. occupation and the news source for a massacre, Aditha, those you saw in the collateral murder video. Um, I tried to read the names, but the event runners immediately grabbed the list and tore it up. Uh, but I was able to shut it down for a little while, right when Bush was getting into his first little cheesy story about um, his life and all that, trying to be funny. But uh, so hopefully I shook him and set a tone for the event. The crowd was very mad. Um, typical crowd you'd expect for George W. Bush, but they seem to not be expecting it at all. Courageous stuff. And I, I've gotten the pleasure to meet, meet um, Mike Prisoner, who <clears throat> also works with Abby Martin in um, producing The Empire Files. And yeah, they're both great people who really, really care about the stuff that they are reporting and talking about and the people and the stories they're reporting and talking about and the humanity behind those stories. Um I know Mike Preisner has lived experiences from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. You can almost see him like in the video version of this, like sort of wiping tears away in the moment of that. Um, I know it means a lot to him. And I really find that it's interesting that a lot of different social media outlets um, ultimately took the video down. The video was taken down from TikTok and Reddit um, due to, quote, harassment and bullying. You know, it's very interesting. It's, I think a lot of these platforms do the bidding of, not necessarily the bidding of governments, but, you know, they face pressure amongst a certain elite class. That elite class might be favorable to establish figures. You know, George W. Bush was far worse than Donald Trump. By a long shot. As a president, I think. With, like, lasting ramifications and consequences, I would still say George W. Bush is worse. Donald Trump is a close second. But because of the near memory of Donald Trump, George W. Bush's image was massaged over and glazed over as though it was a better thing than it actually was. And people need to come correct and remind people of how destructive George W. Bush's administration was. We remember Dick Cheney. You can't paint over that. I must now address the pandemic. Of course, I'm talking about the pandemic of ultra-leftism. Simply defined, and to quote, use, to quote Wikipedia, used pejoratively, ultra-left is used to label positions that are adopted without taking notice of the current situation or the consequences which would result from following a proposed course. 
Now, the ultra left takes a lot of forms now. Um, I'd say this is pretty much anyone who puts a um, hammer and sickle emoji in their Twitter icon is a perfect example of this. Um, <clears throat> you know, not everyone. We don't like to generalize here on Power Report. We're, we're big tent here. And um, I, for one, have no complaints with some of the more radical efforts of you know nature that are festering online i'm actually happy that there are more radicals that feel like they can speak more freely on the internet because electoralism is a dead end there's only so far you can get with the political structures that were given because the political structures that were given were not made for any kind of um worker power and so where I may differ from a lot of online communists and leftists is the understanding that in order to topple systems like these, you have to do it from the outside, but you also have to do it from the inside. In fact, you need kind of both powers working simultaneously in order to affect great massive change. Um, they need to be working in tandem and sync. And so you need to understand who your allies are, who your enemies are, and you have to sort of work closely within that. And so one case study where I think the um, ultra-left really got ignited, got some free content, if you will, was um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and that white dress she wore at the Met Gala that said tax the rich in red lettering. At this point, this is very old news when I'm covering it. Um, that's just the nature of PowerPoint and uh, my schedules. Um, but all that being said, I don't need to really explain that story to you. I'll just explain that the image speaks for itself more or less. This is what um, AOC chose to do when she was invited to this um event for rich people that supposedly has charitable elements, but is mostly just a schmoozing event for rich, famous people. They were bad takes, which was what she did was great and empowering. <laughs> Not really. Um, she did a decent thing while she was there. It was better if she... It was better than if she did nothing. Um, and to be clear, it's not like if... Well, I'll, I'll make that point later, right? But another bad take was what she did was completely empty and performative. Because that goes into what I was about to say. This isn't Nancy Pelosi wearing a tax the rich dress. That would be empty and performative because Nancy Pelosi does nothing but protect the rich. You look at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and she doesn't just wear tax the rich on a trendy dress to go out to a particular outing. She's literally in Congress writing bills to make it so the rich pay more in taxes. <laughs> All right? She's, that's literally the difference between walking the walk and talking the talk. She is doing both in that. And she's only one congressperson. There's only so much she can do. But she helped start a movement that has now gotten multiple congresspeople that are sympathetic to her way of thinking about politics in office. And has made it so other people who are already in office, who are kind of sympathetic to her politics, can now feel like they have room to be vocal. <clears throat> and so when it comes to building power internally, while radicals build power externally, if the goal is 
you know, some form of expropriation of wealth, then AOC is on your side. Now, look, I, I, my take is AOC is far from perfect and not above criticism. And my overall take from the dress thing, because of course I got to throw my hat in the ring, is I think the particular outing was tone deaf. I think that there's a contextualization that needs to be made with the two tiered economic system we're currently living in, where certain people are able to reap the benefits of a fully remote or hybrid work model where they can work from home. They're able to afford the benefits of having things delivered to them and brought to them. They're able to save a lot of money because they're not necessarily going out. And so they have a lot of disposable income versus the other side of the economy where people who have qualifications are having a difficult time finding work that meets those qualifications or finding work that pays them an amount of money that meets their living needs because the cost of living in not just major cities, but elsewhere has far outpaced wages and has been outpacing wages since the 1980s. I think the fact that in the context of everything I just said, for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to go to the Met Gallons where a dress says tax the rich, I think is a little tone deaf. And that she should have made a statement about why is this and other events happening when we're still in the midst of a pandemic? When we're still in the midst of an increasing epidemic of economic depression, of housing insecurity, of financial insecurity, of the mental instability and health instability that that begets that that causes and yet the dress became a distraction you see when there are certain messaging things that i gave um congresswoman ocasio cortez to give her respect uh some leeway on when she just began running right when she just got into office, I gave her some leeway because she's just learning how to be a politician. But now she kind of knows the ropes of how to be a politician. And she knows that due to the particular mix of misogyny in this country, that she is going to play a particular role in the media spin cycle. That she can actually weaponize the media, should she choose to, for her advantage. But instead, you get these kind of tone-deaf things here. These kind of tone-deaf, you know, like, behaviors out there. And so, what that kind of, what I would add to that is, you have to look, <clears throat> you have to weigh these kind of, you know, weird publicity things with her actions and the work she's doing in her district. For example, her plan for fiscal year 22, what she's trying to get into the budget, funds a number of community funding, community projects in her district, there's $3 million for a um, renovation for an obstetrical inpatient facility to make it easier for, um, you know, folks from low-income communities to be able to have good support during um, childbirth situations. Um, there's a development for renewable energy for offshore wind that would create jobs. That's like a little mini Green New Deal that would go directly to her district. Um, 
there's family support counselors, there's technology upgrades, all these different things would be in the six figures at least, if not more, um, to different community things going on in her district that she's trying to fight for in this congressional bill. She's done different, um, you know, outreach resources things for COVID-19, getting people food resources and other things um, in her district. She's been very visible inside of her district. And then on the national level, um, she introduced a bill to extend unemployment benefits because everyone seems to have forgotten about that. Um, people are saying, oh, well, once unemployment benefits lapse, people will start rushing into getting these jobs. But turns out there are a lot of jobs that are simply not coming back because things have closed permanently. And then there's still a lot of jobs out there, but not a lot of people want to go back to those jobs because that means going back into horrible customer service situations where people are a customer service, you know, people complain about it all the time and like, I'm not like saying anything special about that regardless. Right. Like, you know what you're getting into with customer service. Like, not like, you know what you're getting into, but like people are particularly worse because of the mask thing. They're less willing to comply with mask mandates. They're more upset about different social distancing measures that have to be in place, um, that are put in place as like city and state mandates. And so, it's just harder to work in customer service now. And it's kind of deterring a lot of people from doing that. People are leaving customer service and deciding they want to do something else. They want to pivot or change in their um, job field, but they're finding the job field is not willing to accept people moving throughout the job sector. It's, it's a larger issue with our economy that is that was going unanswered during or before COVID, it was unaddressed before COVID, that now that you have COVID-19, where you have people looking to uh, switch their roles and be differently mobile, that you don't have an economy that is able to support that in any kind of way. It goes back to how the elites were relying on to have plans for these kinds of things don't actually have the plans we're relying on them for, which kind of gives you some things to say about, you know, what the anarchists have going on. But AOC also raised $300,000 to, um, for Texas pro-choice abortion groups, um, after that whole thing that happened in Texas. We talked about that in the last episode of Power Report. She also proposed an amendment to block the sale of precision-guided munitions to Israel. Um, and this became really important because a couple days later, she ended up voting present. She switched her vote from no to present on um, continuing funding for Israel's Iron Dome defense system. And so she released a sob story based on why she changed her vote from no to present, even though that change from no to present was ultimately inconsequential. It was sort of a, you know, symbolic vote anyways. And she basically penned a long story saying that because of the process and how quickly the vote was moved, I had to switch my vote to present and I had tears about and it was very hard, but I hope people understand. It's maybe it's true, but the most charitable interpretation I have of it is that she has to balance her connections to New York politics that will target her for any perceived anti-Semitism with demands from the left for broader recognition of the Palestinian plight. But when it comes to this matter of the ultra-left, it's gotten to this point where on the internet you just get points for to score 
by proving that you are more left than the most left figure online. Like, oh, I'm more left than them for whatever reason, or this isn't left enough, or they aren't pushing it far enough, or if I were in their position, I'd be doing X, Y, or Z. And it's easy to say that from your position, which is not their position. But when you have political considerations to have, when you have political considerations that are outside of your control, when you have to work against the fact that you have to convince people first and win over their trust before they ride with you on things that they have been conditioned to believe things on. This sort of ultra-left idea that, oh, you just say these things and it'll happen, or you just fall on every single leftist sword imaginable and you still keep your seat. It's why the right wins. Because the left gets continuously stuck on purity contests and ideological matches when they're bigger fish to fry. A salon piece, I don't like salon, but they report on this and it's really important. Kirsten Cinema received $750,000 in donations from Big Pharma and then opposed a drug bill that, you know, among other things, would have allowed Medicare to negotiate drug costs. Medicare keeps its costs relatively low because it can negotiate drug costs. And that's what um, companies, uh, healthcare programs do in other countries. They negotiate drug costs so that these companies can't price gouge regular people. Because if you have one payer, one single payer, and that single payer is the government, the government's going to choose the price they pay for that drug. Otherwise, that drug is basically not going to get sold in this entire market. So then the company has to go down and negotiate. You know, Medicare can't say, make this drug $1. Um, but they can meet somewhere in the middle that makes it so the cost savings that are passed on to society as a whole by the people who use all these drugs makes it as a net benefit as opposed to the net loss we're currently getting when you have people who are uninsured getting all these medications and it running up costs in our healthcare system that I've talked about before being hilariously inefficient considering the bad outcomes we get. But Kirsten Sinema was caught in 4K, taking donations from Big Pharma and then opposing the drug bill. Where's the ultra-left on that? Where's their mobilization on that? What are they doing to attack Kirsten Sinema? Because AOC was calling that out. What about Joe Manchin, the coal baron? A lot has been said. Um, the Intercept has done some great work on Joe Manchin's history. Not just his history, you know, right? But like his how entrenched he is in Democrat in not Democratic Party politics, but you know, just like politics in West Virginia. How one person noted um, Sean Dague, Dague, sorry, reading these things online. Noted that Senator Manchin makes three times his salary on dividends from a coal investment. Three times his Senate salary. Coal pays him three times what we do as U.S. taxpayers. And it's completely legal. The New York Times noted 
Um, Joe Manchin, the powerful West Virginia Democrat who chairs the Senate Energy Panel and earned half a million dollars last year from coal production, is preparing to remake President Biden's climate legislation in a way that tosses a lifeline to the fossil fuel industry, despite urgent calls from scientists that countries need to quickly pivot away from coal, gas, and oil to avoid a climate catastrophe. So Joe Manchin is avoiding the science, ignoring the science, ignoring his party's platform. Doing it under the guise of centrism and agreeing and working with a political party, being the Republican Party, who are acting in bad faith. And that's his cover excuse. Because that bad excuse, working with bad faith Republicans, is nowhere near as bad as the real excuse, which is because that's where his bread is buttered. Because that's how he gets donations. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez called Joe Manchin out for this. And Joe Manchin said, and, you know, in reference to AOC, you know, I don't know that young lady well. I really don't. She's just speculating and saying things in reference to AOC calling out Joe Manchin's ties to the fossil fuel industry in West Virginia. Ties that are very well documented in the press. So what is the ultra-left doing to take on Joe Manchin in West Virginia? What is the ultra-left doing to build trust in West Virginia? Because West Virginians don't have trust in their politicians. It is a ripe area for political organizing, for direct action. But I don't see people on the ultra-left talking about that. I see them talking a lot about their own Patreons and whether or not we should organize with... um, Nationalists or not. Uh, there's some jag-off comedians here or there on the ultra-left. There's a lot of people nagging people to read theory on the ultra-left. But what work are these people doing to build political trust outside of their own existing politically insular spaces? And how much of that work are they doing as opposed to just talking down to people? Or acting leftier than thou to other people. The search for perfect allies, and this is a warning to the ultra-left, the search for perfect allies will get you politically annihilated by right-wing extremists because the right-wing extremists don't care about purity. I use this example all the time. Mike Pence and the evangelicals knew that Donald Trump was not a pure, clean, wholesome Christian guy. But they knew that Donald Trump would get the evangelical Christians the power that they needed and protect their power and load the Supreme Court with folks who are sympathetic to their line of power. And so they fell in line. They voted. They supported Trump. They turned the other way when he did things that uh, weren't all that pure, clean, wholesome, and evangelical. Grabbed them by the Access Hollywood tape. and. They ultimately got what they want. I'm not saying the left needs to get rid of all of their principles. But they do have to get smarter about politics and the way these things actually work. And so what I want to do to wrap up this segment and this episode of Power Report is read um, from an article written by Lex von Clark called What is Ultra-Leftism, which I think 
encapsulates this very well. And the premise of this article is a rewriting of Peter Camejo's analysis. Um, Peter Camejo was a socialist activist who gave a speech um, to a youth group in New York City um, that was later titled Liberalism, Ultra-Leftism, or Mass, Ac- or Mass Action. Um, and the speech outlined three different orientations that the contemporary left could make and made arguments for and against each, essentially. Um, so what Lex von Clark did is he modernized this speech to use, you know, instead of the more dated 1970s um, references, to use things that are more relevant to today so people can kind of understand where we're coming from. Because remember, we kind of want the same things, and a lot of us kind of want the same solutions to get there. But it's an understanding of political realities and how to be smarter and learn, not be smarter than those who came before us, because that implies like a cockiness, I don't mean to, but learn the lessons that our elders, our radical elders, tried to teach us so that we don't make their same mistakes, because that's what they want for us. So, gonna go through this. Liberalism. For liberals, power is vested entirely in the elites. And making change is simply a matter of putting the right people into the elite class. Liberals believe that the system, whether that's capitalism, the U.S. government, etc., fundamentally works to the advantage of everyone, and any issues such as poverty, repression, etc., are simply mistakes to be corrected with the proper policy. The liberal elite theory of change is not limited to just government. In the private sphere, many liberals champion initiatives pushing to diversify corporate boards of directors, believing that if just the right identity was in power, that exploitation would cease. Liberalism currently dominates most of the American political landscape. Regardless of ideology, American politicos' only goal is to get certain elites elected and to enact certain policies. Some liberals have grown disillusioned, however. As, they have dragged, as the years have dragged on and the promised top-down progress has never arrived. They've called their representative, marched in the Women's March, and maybe even worn their I Voted sticker longer than a day, and still, nothing really changed. The elites weren't listening. This is where the second orientation, ultra-leftism originates. Quote, a liberal that has gone through an evolution. Ultra-leftism. Like the liberal, the ultra-leftist believes that the elite have all the power, but instead of them usually using it for good purposes and sometimes making mistakes, they believe the elites are maniacally evil and constantly plotting to create the worst possible outcome. Where the liberal sees opportunities to make change by putting new people into power, the ultra-leftist sees everything as hopelessly rigged and stacked against them. Since they believe that the evil ruling class has all the power and all the masses have none, the ultra-leftist is driven to theories of change that center around small minorities of radicals taking drastic action to force the elite's hand. Riots, armed revolution, and autonomous zones at the edge of civilization are some of the core ultra-leftist tactics as they turn away from the masses and focus on either destroying the elites or retreating from society entirely. The actions, they, quote, the actions they propose are not aimed at the American people, Kameho argues. They are aimed at those who have already radicalized. They know beforehand that the masses of people won't respond to the tactics they propose. 
This disbelief in the power of the masses also leads them to denounce many mass strategies as, quote, insufficiently radical, claiming that they have been co-opted and are actually tools of the elites. As Camejo says, ultra-leftists represent a small portion of the broader left but make up a significant portion of those who consider themselves radicals or socialists. They are extremely common on the internet and thousands of newly disillusioned liberals have taken up radical aesthetics over the past few years and joined communities of like-minded ultra-leftists who encourage each other's increasing immersion into the subculture, thus increasing their distance from the real estate of society outside their bubble. A logic, not an ideology. Not all ultra-leftists share the same aesthetic or ideology, however. As emphasized earlier, Camejo's orientations are logics, not ideologies themselves allowing for ultra-leftists to carry the banner of anarchism, Maoism, Trotskyism, or whatever other dead tendency they have revived to try to play revolution because they have no hope. Ultra-leftists can appear to be remarkably liberal. Take, for example, the case for the movement of a People's Party, or any of the, or any of the great number of attempts at a progressive third party in recent years. While seemingly liberal in their goals, elect a new set of politicians who will be properly progressive, the actual tactics and theory of change behind such parties are distinctly ultra-leftist. They ignore the masses and preemptively create a minority of radicals who can instigate performative disturbances in order to force the elites to change. Example, forcing the vote on a bill that has no chance of passing. This points to a fundamental truth about ultra-leftism that none admit. For all, their now, for all their loud denouncements of liberals and liberalism, the ultra-leftists and liberal logics ultimately mirror, are ultimately mirror images of each other, differentiated only by whether they believe the ruling class to be kind or cruel, whether the system is efficient or oppressive. It is no wonder that when you cut through all the rhetoric and get down to their actual organizing, liberals and ultra-leftists prioritize the same ineffective strategies of endless protests obscure reading groups, and intra-left conflict. Mass action. Camejo's third orientation, mass action, rejects the fundamentals of both the liberal and ultra-leftist logic, asserting that power does not lay entirely in the hands of the elites, but rather is a constant struggle between the ruling class and the masses. This is a dialectical, class-struggled-centered analysis that understands change as the product of conflict instead of just the decision-making of elites. Where liberalism and ultra-leftism have minority theories of change either focused on putting in new elites or leading a small super-radical sect, mass action focuses entirely on the working class. Liberals-slash-ultra-leftists orient themselves entirely around the capitalist class. Mass action organizers orient themselves only towards the working class. Mass action is not somehow in between liberalism and ultra-leftism, but it's actually completely separate from them in how it analyzes power in society. A liberal calls their congressperson. An ultra-leftist tweets about a general strike. A mass action-oriented socialist is meeting workers where they are and mobilizing them in struggle. As Camejo says, this is the way to not only play, but make a revolution. This is Dan from the Internet. This has been your Power Report. Maybe you don't have to make the revolution today. But you probably should tomorrow.
find a way to get involved. If you don't know where to start, go to youtube.com slash Dan from the internet. That's not a shameless plug. I made a video called Bad News on there, and it's all about your relationship between news and politics and where you can begin to learn how to make a real difference in your community and how to learn mass action properly. And so please, please check that out. Make sure you follow us on social media at Power Report WRLD on Twitter, at Power Report WRLD on Twitter, powerreport.world on Instagram. That's also our website, powerreport.world. You can find all the podcasts. And uh, we're at youtube.com slash Dan from the Internet. You can find all the Power Report clips there because that's me, Dan from the Internet. And yeah, make sure you check out the next episode of Power Report. It should be coming up very soon. And there'll be a really cool guest that I think you'll enjoy. Once again, I've made this a long one. I honestly don't plan for these to be as long as they are, but I'm glad that you're getting the content that you are. Till next time, till the revolution, stay safe. <laughs>